Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we have an impressive selection of guests. Award-winning New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik, Natalia Viana, co-founder of Agência Pública, Brazil's first non-profit investigative journalism outlet. And we head to Salone del Mobile too. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the fantastic New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. Gopnik recently published a real work on the mystery of mastery, and he spoke to Monaco's Georgina Godwin on her Mid Writer show. But for The Stack, he stopped by here at Midori House to tell us more about his work at the iconic Condenas title, The New Yorker. The truth is, is that when I arrived in New York, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to write a musical comedy, and I wanted to write for The New Yorker. I had written the college show, which I, about the life of Vladimir Tatlin, a Russian instructivist architect. I thought well, I was two minutes from Broadway, and it turned out not to be that way. But the other thing I wanted to do was write for The New Yorker. And I would sit, I describe this in my book, At the Stranger's Gate, I would sit in this 9 by 11 basement room that my wife and I had rented, and I would just write. And then once a week, I would go down to the New Yorker offices, in those days on West 43rd Street, and slip what I'd written under the door, truly. And then it would come back to me with a rejection sleep the following week. And this went on for six years, essentially, until finally, in May of 1986, they bought one of these things, an odd essay called Quattrocento Baseball. And then I started writing for them. They bought something else. Then they hired me as a as an editor, writer, slash writer originally, and then I've been there ever since. And it's fascinating because for me, Adam, the New Yorker remains quite, there's, there's a certain mystique about it. And, and people talk about the golden age of magazines, whatever, but I still think the New Yorker still have that element to itself, don't you think? I, you know, look, I, I hope so, obviously, mm. right? That's part of the, the, to be brutal, is part of what we trade in, right? But it's also a very hard thing to keep up. The thing I think people sometimes don't get about The New Yorker is that we are a magazine primarily of reporting and criticism. We're not a magazine of social policy. The Atlantic, which is a wonderful magazine, will run a piece about what should we do about crime in the streets or something. But we don't do that, really. Now, we'll deal with that kind of material, but we deal with it through criticism. I'll get 18 books on the crime decline in America or incarceration in America and write about them. Or we'll do it through reporting. I'll go to, not just me, I'm using me as the guinea pig mm. here. I'll go to, um, if I'm, uh, you know, the crisis of incarceration, spend a year with um, Sam Rivera, a great man who's out of prison, who's helping other men through it. So we're a magazine of criticism and reporting, which is, and gives us a certain kind of sinew, if you know what I mean. That's what we do. And from the very first issue to, I hope now, we're a magazine of humor. The cartoons in The New Yorker are not, secondary or cosmetic. They're the, the beating heart of the magazine. So criticism, reporting, and humor are where we live and where we have to continue to live. And although it's called The New Yorker, of course, I feel that it's quite international in its spirit as well. I mean, even you can tell us about your experience because you've, you've been to Paris yes. for a few years as well. Well, traditionally, The New Yorker, always, or from sort of from the 1930s on, always had a presence abroad. Janet Flanner, great writer, preceded me in Paris. A.J. Liebling, an even better writer, followed her or was parallel with her. 
So we've always been a magazine of overseas reporting of that kind. David Remnick, the current editor of the magazine, who made his reputation as a reporter in uh, in Moscow during the Gorbachev years, has a particular passion for that and, and wants the magazine always to be on top of whether it's Iraq or Georgia or, or those things. And he greatly values those incredibly intrepid reporters who will go to a scene of violence and danger and come back with a story, as he has done himself. He doesn't call on me to do that too often. I, I'm usually counted on to go to Paris or London to report on the changing scene there. But it's very much part of the, the magazine's mandate, as he understands it. How was the experience in Paris? Was that something that you kind of fought for it or you've been asked actually to spend a few years Tina in Paris? Brown, who was the editor of mm-hmm. the magazine then and mm-hmm. who both revolutionized the magazine, but in most important respects, restored it to orthodoxy and mm-hmm. re- recuperated it in many ways, said to me, I've always thought you would do wonderfully writing from abroad. I would have been the art critic of the magazine for a while. And she could sense I was dissatisfied with it. I had, I had not larger, but other ambitions. And I said, absolutely, Tina, I would love to go to Paris and write from there. And to her great credit, she said, oh, absolutely, go to, let's go to Paris. Go to Paris. Just go, 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 and write from there, which was sort of audacious of her because in the 90s, the world, including Tina, didn't think of Paris as being a cockpit of modern experience, thought of it much more as a, as a backwater, uh, mm. actually more like, you know, like the little Gaulish town in the Asterix comics, you know, <laughs> the whole world has been conquered by... America. And she thought accurately that London was a much more lively place. But that's exactly what drew me to Paris, was studying the little Gaulish village that said no to the encircling Anglo-American hegemony and, and dominant discourse. And Tina, which is what makes her a great editor, believed in writers, not in subjects. And she said, OK, if he wants to go there, we'll find out what's there. And it was a joyous experience for me because every writer has a moment in life when you discover your voice. And I had been, an, I think, an adept, maybe even at times, a more than adept art critic, and I'd written about other things. But I knew from the moment I started writing in Paris that I had found myself writing as many things, and, and I work as hard at writing as I think any writer that I know. But finally, it's that moment when you have some mix of irony and sincerity, some mix of the own personal vibration of your voice with the world you're describing. And I knew that I had arrived at it in Paris. It's that nice moment where you feel you know it's good work. Even people who hate me have to say, this is, this is unfortunately, this is good. So that was a joyous time for me and, and, and the most instructive one. I love that you mentioned that Tina believed in the writer, not necessarily subjects, because yeah. for me, that's what The New Yorker is about. And even looking at your more recent articles, I mean, you wrote about the new logo of, yeah. of New York, which nobody, <laughs> nobody liked it, right? But also about artificial lighting, poisoning, the world, yes. you know, it's yeah, very diverse. You know, I, that's the joyful thing. I mean, I should say it's not, as some people seem to think, a sinecure. I mean, it demands endless work. I, the piece about the New York logo, I got in a text from an editor saying, have you seen this crazy logo? And I was on a plane and I said, oh, my goodness, I'll let me write something. And I wrote it on the plane and sent it off. It's, you know, the one thing that I resent, it gets me, is that people think, oh, it's a kind of cushy, easy sinecure being a New Yorker writer, like being an Oxford Don or something. And it's just the opposite. You gain the independence, the autonomy to write about the things you feel passionately about by the industry with which you write about everything. It is a weekly magazine and it rewards industry and always has. I write six hours a day, seven days a week, books and and shows sometimes too, but the core of it is the New Yorker. The great figures of the New Yorker, John Updike, who's my own particular pope, 
was as unceasingly industrious a writer as there could be. And he gave me the one piece of kind of passing on of hands, what does one call that, you know, advice that I ever got after I'd been there about a year. He came around and he said, gently said, oh, Mr. Yopnik, I'm enjoying your work very much, very much. He said, you know, I suspect you're a yes writer like me, and I would recommend to you that you just say yes to everything because you'll waste more emotional energy worrying about what to write rather than just writing. And I took that right to heart, and now basically you say one something, you can have it. It's the way writers stay in shape. And Adam, you are a busy man. You spoke to my colleague Georgina about your uh, new book as well. And right. sometimes you're an actor in Hollywood films as <laughs> yeah. well with Kate Blanchett. Uh, what, what are the other plans for 2023, maybe particularly with The New Yorker? I mean, I know probably you can't review what you're writing you know, at the moment. No, I'm glad. I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm unembarrassable and completely unsecretive. You know, some writers keep things locked inside mm. and other writers talk it out. A.J. <laughs> Liebling, my hero, was like that. He, everyone said he would talk the piece and then you would see it the next week in the Mac. I love sort of being a critic at large. You know, my wonderful editor, Henry Finder, basically throws eight books at me and says, can you make something of this? And then you have to kind of turn it into mulch and grow, and grow flowers from it. And I love that. It's like being a perpetual Oxford student in 1890, you know, where your tutor gives you books and you report on them. I love doing that. I want to go back to Paris, since you ask, and, and write more. But more than anything else, The simple truth is that, you know, my work took a very radically different turn six or seven years ago for the simple reason that Donald Trump and uh, an indigenous American fascism, I won't hesitate to call it that, mm -hmm. were rising. And I began to write passionately and frequently about politics and eventually produced my book, A Thousand Small Sanities. We are in the midst of a national, an unending national emergency in the United States. And writers are both artists and citizens, certainly public writers of my kind. And the citizenship part of it will be ever more strong with the election coming up. I don't think we can speak out loudly enough or often enough about the fundamental threat to liberal democracy, the possibility that liberal democracy could be assassinated in front of our eyes. And so that's my primary task, my primary expectation, and my primary duty. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll definitely be keeping an eye for your uh, upcoming articles. And and by the way, as a New Yorker reader, I see that there's more of it because I have, I'm a subscriber of the newsletter as well. Yes. And sometimes, you know, there's like articles that you can only see on see, the internet. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of content. It's a lot of content. We do a lot online now. And I will say, you know, David Remnick has proven himself to be, a, even those of us who loved him as a writer and as a friend and knew he would be a terrific editor, could not have anticipated what a terrific editor he would be. And one of the things that he's done is to make sure that there's no division between the online magazine and the print magazine. It would have been easy to make the online magazine sort of for the, the youngsters, the Aravis, but he's insisted that those of us who are creaky and easily exhausted veterans be online in the online part just as much as we are in the print part. So there's no segregation between those two things, which I think makes us, makes you know that whatever you're reading is, is mint New Yorker or vintage New Yorker at least. Thank you very much, Adam. Of course, the latest issue of The New Yorker is out now. And also, his book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery as well. And you can listen to more Adam Gopnik on Georgina Godwin's Meet the Writers. The 
the 2023 International Journalism Festival has been taking place in Perugia, with one of this year's main themes centered on the spread of misinformation, particularly around elections. One of the journalists combating this in Sao Paulo is Natalia Viana, co-founder of Agência Pública, Brazil's first non-profit investigative journalism outlet. Monaco's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, spoke to her after her panel to discuss her role in the Brazil election. The way Agência Pública works is we do in-depth investigation and we are an agency, so we spread our stories through other media outlets. So there's like 600 other outlets currently in Brazil who use our content. And why did you set it up? Could you tell there was a gap for this type of journalism? Absolutely. So Publica was founded 12 years ago by me and another woman journalist because our beat forever has been covering human rights issues. But, you know, a decade, uh, two decades ago, this was seen in Brazil as like, you know, a an activist kind of journalism or left-wing kind of journalism. The legacy media was not doing it at all. And then what happened is, was with the internet, with the social media specifically, there was an appetite for these kinds of stories. And, and, and it's not only in Brazil, it's everywhere. So race was not an issue that was debated or covered. Gender violence or gender issues in general was, were not covered. In Brazil, of course, you've got indigenous people's rights. It was also something that was completely ignored by legacy media, land conflicts, etc., the poverty, the gap, uh, uh, wealth gap. So these are issues that we started reporting on and very quickly we attracted attention to the work and to the quality of the work. And did you have an important role to play in the recent election? We had a role to play. So what we did is like, so we were focusing historically in the human rights issues. But when Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, far right wing guy was elected president, we had a, a planning. And what we noticed is that he stood against everything that our values are, stand for and everything that our journalism is about. So we decided that we actually... Even though we cover much more society and social movements, we should go to Brasilia, the capital, and we should cover the government. So we started having a much more consistent coverage of the power of the federal government, of uh, the ways that he was trying to demobilize human rights and human rights institutions and these institutions that are setting place safeguarding human rights so we did a lot of reporting on that and of course when it came to the elections we had already done a lot of investigations that were used during the elections but we also covered very specifically and very in depth his whole attempt to subvert erode the election process, which he basically did mimicking what uh, Donald Trump had done in the U.S. And this was what this discussion was about. He used Donald Trump's playbook and, you know, adapted it to Brazil and used it in Brazil. So in the while, like two years before, in, in the year of the election, we developed tools and strategies to investigate the misinformation campaigns, their funding and who were behind them because we knew he was going to use uh, Donald Trump's playbook. And then to represent the stories of those previously not represented in media, how do you go about doing that? It's, it's where well, you go and listen to them, basically. What happened like much more traditionally in Brazil is that you'd have, say, a very simple thing. There was some a violent, uh, there was a death that happened in some remote part of the country, say a community, and one person was killed, a leader was killed. Traditionally, the media would like parachute there and only listen to the police and then only listen to the judges and only listen to the government. What this led to is that 
if the police was in cahoots with the assassins, which happens so often because they're like landowners, they're, they represent big economic interests, this is not a representation of reality. So what we started doing is we started interviewing social leaders as like a reputable source. It's, it's really that simple. But also getting their cues and their leads and investigating it further. Because one of one of the issues that happens is that even though like you have a very strong civil society in Brazil, many of the social movements they are not of course they're not investigators so they know that something's wrong they have some ideas or they have even some cues but journalists don't go there spend time with them and understand the situation so this is basically what we have uh, proficiency like that, that's how we managed to develop a way of investigating that was actually uncovering many things that were totally underreported and can we link that to the session that you just ran or were a part of here at the international journalism festival yeah, well, it's uh, this has more to do because this is a very different set of tools to investigate because this is basically misinformation campaigns that happen online and they use online tools and online um, online misinformation networks. They use uh, tools to create fake profiles, but also there is a, a human infrastructure, a group of people who are behind this. So this to investigate these kinds of disinformation playbooks to erode democracy, we have to ally series of things we like like technological tools so we scrape data of different uh, social media networks we do big data analysis to try and see the patterns and how you know different profiles say on twitter connect to each other and how they react to each other we also do shoe leather reporting both in real world like talking to sources in the far right but also shoe leather reporting online, like following a Twitter feed and understanding how this guy communicates to this guy. This is not data analysis, this is observation. And then, of course, you've got court documents and you've got trying to trace financial movements. You've got uh, payments from the government uh, to, to hire specific companies that then take over, you know, social media of specific people who are both congressmen and influencers and are spreading fake news. So it's a set of tools that are much more modern. We actually, investigating misinformation is a new field. The academics, the academia is developing tools. That's why we really need to partner up with them. But journalists are coming up with ideas. You have to come up with ideas too. It's a new threat. So how much of what you do now is combating misinformation? Well, quite a lot actually, because this investigation... We've been doing a lot of investigation between about the connections between Donald Trump and Bolsonaro, Donald Trump's family and Bolsonaro family. And this is ongoing. So we started last year, but it's ongoing now. Right now we are looking at, you know, trying to get a deeper dive on the companies that are involved and the companies that actually run the social media strategies of these people. And then you go into, you know, company investigation, financial investigation. So it's a different phase. But it's only a group of our reporters that do that. The others are, are doing, you know, a lot of investigative reporting about the Amazon, climate change, uh, human rights issues, you know, violence against uh, poor people in the cities, but also gender issues and indigenous people's rights as well. Thank you very much, Natalia Viana, and for all the work you do at Agência Pública. And now to Salone del Mobile in Milan, where Monaco's design editor Nick Moniz was busy looking at the latest design trends. There he met Alessio Ascari, publisher and creative director of Capsule, Kaleidoscope's new sibling publication, delving into the world of design in its broader definition, one that encompasses interiors and architecture, fashion and technology, ecology and craft, to explore our relationship with desire 
and consumption. Capsule is released annually during Milan Design Week. Let's hear more from Alessio. Kaleidoscope was started more than 10 years ago, so that's like a, almost like a teenager now. So Capsule is the newborn. So we started one year ago for Salone del Mobile. Last year was not in the regular program, you know, it was June, so we launched it actually less than one year ago. And around that, we started to also organize exhibition and events at Spazio Maiocchi, which is a space that we curate in Milano. This year, one year later, we're bringing back Capsule, which is an annual magazine, so it's published once a year during Salone del Mobile. But around that, we're actually building like a bigger, stronger ecosystem that it's called Capsule Plaza which is almost like a physical expansion of, of the magazine. It's a cool new format, somehow like a hybrid between, let's say, a fair and a, a group exhibition, a showcase, but we have a bar, we have like a store, we have talks, so it's great energy. And it's really like a project, you know, made in Milano with the idea of like bringing the world to Milano and Milano to the world. So it's, it's, it's working. The opening was yesterday. It was like a legendary moment. Yeah. Amazing. In, in Milan Design Week. I mean, yeah. I want to get into that physical space in a moment, but I just want to take a few steps back mm -hmm. to talk about Capsule itself as, yeah. as a magazine. It's, a, it's an annual publication, certainly a design-leaning publication, but what sets it apart, I guess, from other, other design design-focused magazines? What, make, what makes Capsule special? It's really a project that started during the pandemic, you know? so we really had a lot of time, or at least like more time than, than usual, to, you know, look back, essentially, you know? I think that this is something that many entities, many brands, many, you know, people had during COVID. So the, the possibility of like digging into their archives, researching and um, rediscovering things. So for me and, and for my team was mainly collecting, researching magazines and publications from Italy, from, uh, you know, the, the golden age of publishing here, especially in Milano, so the, the 70s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s. So we really uh, researched and collected many, many magazines publications. And, you know, the, the result of this research was the idea of try to do something inspired by that. So like a publication based in Milano about design with that kind of attitude that was very multidisciplinary, very experimental. And we had the feeling that that kind of attitude was somehow missing in the publishing landscape, in the design and architecture publishing landscape. I mean, so what, what do you think it went missing? I think that the, the level of experimentation and also uh, really this idea of connecting the dots between different uh, disciplines. Uh, if you look back at this like legendary publication that Ettore Sozzas did, you know, or Alessandro Mendini, you had like fashion shoes, we have like crazy artist portfolios, you had architecture, fashion, theory, poetry. It was really like, you know, going through artist books almost, you know, so really the level of, of manifestos. I mean, radical design was born on the pages of Casabella as a manifesto, you know, and the postmodern movement was born on the pages of magazines. So it was really this idea of the magazine as a, as a laboratory of ideas. And, and that's something that I think it's, it's a bit missing in the design. So I think that Capsule, is, we are trying at least, you know, but it's bringing back that kind of also Italian Milanese attitude, but it's of course like a 2020 
2022-23 updated version of that. Amazing. So, I mean, tell me about the 2022-2023 version. What have we got in this year's capsule? Uh, this year, I mean, we have like three covers. One is this cover about the uh, about Willow Perron, this, this creative director and designer based out of Los Angeles. But again, this is like an excuse to talk and discuss broader ideas. So this is also a story about uh, the bed as you know like a platform for imagination and you know also here during the pandemic really the bed turned into like a, a workstation or you know like a home so it's it's a study that that starts with willow but really go beyond that and then we have like another cover that is shooted in tokyo with this legendary japanese photographer takashi yoma and it's about polan 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 you know the the, the, the french historical brand and the relationship between the brand and japan and then we have the third cover, which is by emerging Mexican fashion designer, Baragan, that is now also experimenting in furniture. So yeah, it's a set of three covers. I mean, it's amazing. It sounds like those designers are doing that multidisciplinary thing that you're trying to do in the magazine. So it's a really beautiful, uh, yeah. beautiful people to choose for, for the cover. Exactly. Yes. I mean, yes. And, and then tell me a little bit uh, about that, that physical manifestation of Capsule in the form of Capsule Plaza at Milan Design Week. Yeah, some of these covers, actually, the, the one that I just mentioned, are like literally exploded, like extended in the space at Spazzuma Yoki through a physical exhibition, like an experience. So, for example, with Willow Peron, we worked on this listening room that is bringing together his design. It's this like massive sausage uh, sofa, that's how we call it. The version that we are is presenting is called, is calling it the Italian sausage, funny enough. And we have also like the, uh, an iconic chair by Polan, the groovy chair, but in a, in a new color way, and a sound system by this uh, incredible engineer and sound artist called Devon Hodges. So we have like this series of listening sessions for audio fields, you know, and, and, and music lovers. And um, yeah, so both the Willow cover and the Polan cover are somehow, you know, yeah, they have like a physical, a physical translation in the space. I guess just finally, what do you hope people take away from, from reading this issue? Um, I mean, so many themes here. I think that one of the main inspiration, again, was radical design for us, looking back at the data and, and trying to translate that into today. But in the editor's letter that I wrote for this issue, uh, uh, I, I, I discussed this uh, legendary show that was called Italy, the New Domestic Landscape. It was uh, held at MoMA in 1972. Two of the, of the main themes of that exhibition that was featuring you know, guys like Ettore Sozza, Gaio Lenti, Gaetano Pesce, Mario Bellini, you know, all the people that now also the new generations are like rediscovering and that are now like super hyped. They were there in that exhibition presenting new projects, new prototypes, new ideas. And two of the main themes in that exhibition were modularity on one end and on the other mobility. So I think that these two themes really inspire this issue. So when it comes to mobility, we have this incredible special. I really love that story in the new issue, which is about the golden age of car design in Italy. So we managed to get in touch with all the guys, all the designers that are all in their 80s now and living between Milano and Torino that in the span of time between the 60s and the 90s design the best of the best, you know, everything from the Ferrari Testarossa, the Lamborghini Diablo, the Fiat Panda, the Volkswagen Golf, uh, all the Lamborghinis, the concept cars, the DeLorean that you've seen back to the future. So these guys are like the Avengers, like the Wu-Tang Clan of car design. And they're all featuring this issue. We have like interviews with all of them. And I think that people that love car design 
we love this story. On the other hand, we have like this story about the new train that Sana uh, Sejima-san um, designed in Tokyo. It's called La View. And so it's about mobility and sustainability, and uh, and it's uh, yeah, a like great, great Japan story. So yeah, modularity, mobility, it's two themes that I think you can find throughout the issue somehow. Yeah. I love it. Where can people pick up a copy of Capsule? Right now at the pop-up store that, that we have at uh, Capsule Plaza uh, throughout the week, and from the week after, it's going to be online and distributed in like in a selected uh, network of bookstores that we work with yeah, globally. Yeah. Amazing. Alessio, thank you. So no, thank you, guys. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Alessio, and the latest edition of Capsule will be out soon. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Odyssey with Native New Yorker. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Down on Broadway